All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're starting a new book of the Bible today, and I'm so excited for this because this is going to kind of like lead our time for the next few months. Now, you're probably thinking like, why 2 Corinthians? Like, why not 1 Corinthians? Well, because I want to do 2 Corinthians. Um, there are some themes here and some issues and topics that Paul brings up that I just think are very relevant for us today. I think there are uh, some themes we'll be looking at and going through for the next few months that are just perfect for 2021. And we're just looking at 2 Corinthians from this lens of a new way to live, like a new way to do life. Like we want to add some new rhythms, new habits, just a lifestyle of following Jesus. What does it mean to be a new creation in Christ Jesus? Old things pass away, all things become new. 2 Corinthians kind of offers this new way of living as followers of Jesus. Now, fun fact, 2 Corinthians is probably not even 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is probably not even 1 Corinthians. Paul refers to a letter in 1 Corinthians he wrote to this church. So here's some things. 1 Corinthians is probably 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is probably 4 Corinthians. Um, Paul most likely wrote four different letters to this church based off what he says in his letters. Now, the reason why I'm even bringing this up is Paul, we have 1 and 2 Corinthians in the scriptures. Paul wrote a lot to this church. Paul loves this church. I mean, if you think about this, this is the most Paul's written to any church more than to the church of Rome, Galatia. This, Paul wrote a lot to the church at Corinth. So there's some important things here. All right, like a lot of real estate in the Bible is dedicated to the church at Corinth. Now we'll talk more about uh, the, the church of Corinth in a little bit, but just so you kind of know as we approach this, I mean, this was a messy church. Like this was a messed up church. Paul has to call them out on a lot of their sin in 1 Corinthians. I mean, 1 Corinthians was a pretty heavy book. He's like, hey, you guys have been living, or someone in your church has been living a really promiscuous life. He's sleeping with his stepmom. He's called himself a follower of Jesus. He's not repenting. Cut off fellowship from him. You need to do, like, Paul has some pretty heavy words for them. I mean, Paul basically even says, like, listen, in 1 Corinthians 6, he names a list of different lifestyles and sins that they've been saved out of. He's like, and such were some of you. I mean, this was the church that was known for getting drunk on the communion wine, right? Paul's like, stop getting drunk when you take communion. All right, this is a messed up church. And I want you to understand this idea, this, this word uh, Corinth or the church of Corinth, this became like a slang or a negative term. People would even say like, oh, you Corinthianizer, right? Like, oh my gosh, you promiscuous person. Like that was like a, a swear word to them. Like, oh, you, you not just call them a Corinthianizer. Oh, I did, right? Like, could you imagine if we had that in South Florida? Like, oh, they're South Floridian. Like, oh, don't say South Floridian. Like, yeah. Well, they are. Like, that, that's just kind of how it was used, right? We kind of have a Florida term, right? We have, the, we're the Florida man state. Like, we're the, like, every news article, Florida man. We have our own weird slang. Um, but this church kind of had just some messy, messed up kind of background, but this is a church that God loves deeply. This is a church Paul loves deeply. He loves it enough to confront it, to call it out, to challenge it, to encourage it. First uh, Corinthians is pretty heavy in the sense of he's calling them out for just some, some things they need to repent of. And Second Corinthians is almost a different take. In Second Corinthians, he's kind of approaching them with this lens of comfort, right? He called them out, and we're going to see as we work our way through 2 Corinthians that they did repent. They did end up making some good choices. Paul's like, I'm proud of you. Good job. But Paul also kind of has to establish just his authority because there have been people questioning Paul and his authority. So there's a lot of different things Paul's addressing here, but I want to point this out. Uh, the book begins with comfort and it ends with comfort. Paul's trying to comfort them right away. And then 2 Corinthians 12, it ends just with comfort. That in our weakness, God is made strong. That God is the God of all comfort. And you know, I'm excited to go through this book of the Bible because it's interesting to me. Whenever we teach through books of the Bible, I'm kind of forced to teach on what the text gives us. And there's something really good about that. Like I would like to teach on certain topics. We've done series, obviously, but there comes a point in time where I'm like trusting the Lord, trusting the Spirit to say, God, you know that we need to talk about this today because this is what your text has for us. And so listen, we're gonna be talking a lot about, in a sense, God comforts because of our afflictions, because of our trials, because of just struggles in general. Paul's bringing this up. And here's my hope today specifically, is that we just tear down some walls, that we would let some people in, that you would let God comfort you today, that you'd let other people come alongside you and just strengthen you and comfort you. Just this idea of comfort means to like give strength, to give strength to you. Like God wants to come alongside you and comfort you. And so we're going to look at this text today, and the title today is simply the God of all comfort, the God of all comfort. I mean, it's based off what Paul says. We're going to look at the God of all comfort. And I really am praying that you would be comforted today, that the Spirit would meet you, 
And even just from talking to people last service, I was thinking like, Lord, you know why we need to be in this. And, and you, there's a reason why we're going to talk about this. And whether you're in a season where you need to be comforted or in a season where you need to do the comfort for others, I'm praying that God would make us a church that we don't just see you once a week, but that we would do life. We wouldn't know what's going on. You would know what's going on in someone else's life. They would know what's going on in your life. And we could truly comfort one another with these words here. So I'm just praying and asking God to make this even less of a study. Like I always want to learn, but I, I want to experience what Paul's offering here. He says, the God of all comfort comforts us. I don't want to just learn that. I want to experience that. I want you to experience that. I want you to experience today the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. God wants to comfort you today. So let's read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. We'll read it all the way through, kind of get some of the context, and then we'll just kind of invite the Lord to, to lead us. Cool? You guys ready? I love starting the book of the Bible. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. If you haven't caught it yet, this is about comfort. All right. Verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so, listen, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, everyone say, but. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's where you say amen. Amen. Verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Again, with this topic today, I just pray that God would comfort us. I pray that we can learn from this text and comfort one another. And as we make our way, really, for the next several months through this book, that this would not just be something we grow in knowledge of, but we grow in the grace of, that we would experience, that we would apply, that we would live out. So just kind of take a second, invite the Lord to speak and move, and then we'll go through the text. Father, we just thank you. We thank you just for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. God, I just ask that this would not be theory to us, that this would be something we can really know. We can really know by experience. Um, Lord, I ask that you'd move in this place, that we'd understand that their context so we can better understand ours, so we can better understand what it is you want to do and accomplish. And Jesus, just I ask right now that those who are just weary, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're walking through a season of, of affliction, like Paul mentions, that Jesus, you would truly just comfort them and that you'd send other believers into their life. That God, we could all just take on this, this expectation of seeking to help someone and comfort someone else the way we've been comforted by you. So we thank you, we praise you, in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question, a simple question. You know, what brings you comfort? Like, what encourages you? You know, like, honestly, at the end of a long day when you're exhausted or tired, like, what really brings you comfort? You know, nothing brings comfort like comfort food. All right, let's talk about comfort food. I was trying to find an excuse to talk about comfort food. Um, when I think, even if I even said those words comfort food, you're like, oh, warm and fuzzy. There's just something about comfort food. I don't know what you imagine when I say comfort food. Like everyone kind of has something, some dish maybe in their mind. When I think of comfort food, I think about how years ago my wife and I went to Savannah, Georgia, and we went to Paula Deen's. Um, if comfort food had a face, it'd be Paula Deen. All right. Um, like when you go there in the menu and you're reading it, 
you can see on the menu, it's like ooey gooey butter pancakes. You're like, oh my gosh, right? Like it's like biscuits and gravy. I mean, this is the place where as soon as I sat down, you know what they did? They put a pancake in front of me. I'm like, where am I? Like, that's something I would do, right? I'm like, is this free? They're like, oh, it's free. I'm like, you just give me a pancake for just walking in. They're like, yeah, here's a pancake. I'm like, this is the greatest place on earth, right? It's just funny to me. Like, there's, there's something so comforting about comfort food. And I, I think about this because there's a lot of different things that bring us comfort. For some, it might be sugar, like ice cream at the end of the day. It might be coffee. It might be like a bath. It might be for some of you like a massage or something. I don't know, but there's all these sort of things that bring us comfort. And here's what's interesting. The Bible does make a difference between being comforted and being comfortable, right? There is a difference between being comforted and being comfortable, meaning we as Americans, probably one of our greatest idols is we always want to be comfortable. We just want to be comfortable. And it's interesting, a lot of times God will take us out of comfort, put us into uncomfortable moments so he then can comfort us. And there's a lot of moments and times where God's like, you're very comfortable. Moses, you're comfortable. I'm going to have you speak in front of Pharaoh, but I can't speak. Mm, too bad. I'm with you. And there's some time moments where God's like, I want to put you in an uncomfortable moment so I can now comfort you. And here's what I'm, I'm getting at. I love how this one author describes this difference between biblical comfort and being comfortable. This will be the longest quote of the day. So bear with me. Here's what he says. He says, for us, the word comfort Uh, may connote emotional relief and a sense of well-being, physical ease, satisfaction, and freedom from pain and anxiety. Many in our culture worship at the cult of comfort in a self-centered search for ease, but it lasts for only a moment and never fully satisfies. The comfort, listen, the comfort that Paul has in mind has nothing to do with a sleepy feeling of contentment. It is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that only dulls pains, but a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart, mind, and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, help, exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees and sustains sagging spirits so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. This is the kind of comfort I would like to see for us today. I would like for God to give us a comfort that strengthens weak, weak knees. You see, it's inevitable that there will be a trial, suffering, affliction, and Paul speaks so brilliantly into this. And I do want to unpack this with you. Because I do think that we can learn a lot and experience a lot when it comes to this idea of comfort from this text. So before we get into this, all right, before we actually like kind of get into the heart of verse 3 through 11, uh, whenever you start a new book of the Bible, it's always good to start off with this idea, this grid of author, audience, and agenda. Author, audience, agenda. Who wrote it? Who is he writing to? And what's the point of this book, all right? And usually it's revealed within the first few verses, the author, the audience, and agenda. So let's just read, actually, verse 1 through 2. All right, here we go. Verse 1 and 2, it says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, this is kind of like business as usual, how Paul starts a lot of letters, but we don't want to just like pass over this really quick. Um, something I want to point out that Paul does really well, and their culture did well, is the idea of greetings. Like, greetings matter. Like the way you introduce yourself or the way you introduce someone, the way you greet someone, that matters. For you parents, you notice like when you have a little kid and you're like, hey, look them in the eyes, shake their hands, and then I like, kick them and run away. You're like, we're trying. I'm sorry. Like, but there's something about greetings. You're trying to teach people to show, to, to show respect, honor. Greetings matter because people matter, because humans matter. We're trying to say, give them worth, give them value, give them dignity, look them in the eyes, show them respect. Paul would always start with some sort of greeting. What I love about Paul's greeting is they're pretty similar, but sometimes different. He'll either call himself a prisoner, he'll call himself a bondservant, a slave of Jesus. Here he calls himself an apostle by the will of God. Paul in this letter, just so you know, has to reestablish his authority as an apostle. Now, the word apostle just means sent one. And in one sense, you could say we're all apostles. We're all sent by God. But in a more literal sense, there's a select group of people who were apostles, people who saw Jesus, believed in Jesus, heard from Jesus, uh, and, and were commissioned by Jesus. Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And according to Galatians 1, he's actually trained up by Jesus. Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles, but he's an apostle. So Paul has to establish his authority here in this letter. Now, I I do want you to see this because in almost every letter of Paul, or basically 13 of these letters, Paul will always say grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Now, the idea behind that is Paul would greet them in their Greco-Roman way, charis, grace, 
So grace, and then peace is the Greek word, but this would be for the Jewish congregants there who were greeted by that word peace or shalom. So the idea was he would say grace and peace. He's kind of combining the East and the West together and saying, hey, grace to my Greek and Roman friends, peace to my Jewish friends. And I love this of grace and peace and just bridging the gap. This is so important and people will point this out. The order is incredibly important. Grace and peace. Grace always comes before peace. You will never experience the grace of God until you've experienced the grace of God. So if someone wants the peace of God, okay, you want to be at peace with God, you want to have the peace of God in your life, you must first know grace. If you know grace, then you can have peace. It always goes grace and peace. And I love this. He goes, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, like this is a common thing. Like we, we see him do this, but let's not just pass over this. Paul is saying grace and peace from God. Like God wants to tell you today, grace and peace. This is from God. God is, God is speaking over you, grace and peace. This is so beautiful that God would say, hey, grace and peace from me. Right? So for example, we had Jess and Selena, the two ladies who sung today up here. If I see them, which I have, I'm like, yo, I love your voices. And let's just say I'm being really nice. I'm like, you have the best voices in the world. They're like, oh, thanks, Josiah. You're just trying to be nice, right? But imagine if like Adele were here, like the Adele, right? And she hears them sing and she's like, yo, ladies, you have the best voice in the world. Like the best voice. All right, it would mean a lot more coming from Adele than it would mean coming from me. If I'm like, I said the same thing, you didn't even care. They're like, yeah, but you're not Adele, all right? Like it doesn't matter. It matters who it comes from. There's some more weight and authority attached to it. And Paul's reminding us, no, this grace and peace comes from God. This is not me saying grace and peace to you. This is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. I think sometimes we, we can just read and pass over the scriptures rather than let it sink in. of like, wow, God, thank you. Thank you that you speak over me grace and peace. Thank you, God, that that's your hope and heart. Paul's really wise, remember, because in some ways, uh, if his relationship with the church of Corinth is kind of complicated. Like if he has like, you know, Facebook relationship status with the church, he'd be like, it's complicated. Because like, there is like a weird kind of dynamic with them. Called them out in sin. He kind of had to ha- be like heavy-handed. And this letter is trying to be comforting. And he just starts off with, hey, grace and peace. Greetings matter. The way we introduce, the way we talk, the way we love, on, it matters. And Paul had this introduction for them. Now, let's stay with me. Author, audience, agenda. So Paul Paul, an apostle, he sets up who he is, and he's writing to the church at Corinth. Now, let's talk about the church at Corinth. Corinth was a port city. Corinth was an incredibly wealthy city. I mean, Corinth was positioned in a very important part of just this part of the globe. We'll put it like a picture of the map so you can kind of see it. Never usually the best picture, but uh, it really bridged the gap, you could say, between east and west. Uh, Julius Caesar, I think in around 44 uh, BC, invested a lot of money into Corinth, like to really rebuild it. Actually, here's what's pretty interesting. You could see it's like on a, on a certain path where they actually to this day have something called the Corinth Canal where ships will pass through. I forget the canal where the boat got stuck. You guys remember that? Suez, there we go. But this canal was like even more small, even more narrow. Now, Julius Caesar, around 55, sorry, not Julius Caesar, Caesar Nero, around 55 AD, actually kind of broke ground to help build that Corinth Canal. Before this time, boats, they'd actually pass through Corinth on like these logs. They would take logs, they would put it on the ground, the boats would come up to the shore, they'd put the boats on these logs and then pull the log out and pull the log out and for three miles, the boats would cross over. It'd save time, it'd save money, it's safer that way. So they'd actually cross. But they're saying, this is not really practical to keep doing it this way. So eventually they try to build a three mile like tunnel uh, to create so boats could pass through. And actually it's around this time that this is when Caesar Nero broke ground first person actually there to like say, okay, we're starting this project. And this was when about almost the same year, actually, Paul wrote this around 55 AD. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians at this time. Why I'm bringing all this up is there's a lot of money being poured in, a lot of attention being poured in. It's actually 49 AD that Claudius, the Roman emperor, kicked out the Jews and they're dispersed and a lot of them went to Corinth. So there's a Jewish population here, but then it's primarily known for its Greco and Roman population. They actually had the Isthmian Games there. These are kind of like the Olympic Games. So they had big sport events in this area. People would travel all across to Corinth to watch these games. So money, popularity, theater life. I mean, a lot was there in Corinth. Actually, if you go to Corinth and you can see like in the city, uh, we had the privilege of going there like seven or eight years ago. There's like a hill, like kind of at the center of Corinth. Uh, in, in Greece, in, in this time period, this is called an Acropolis. Basically any hill over in Greece, they built a temple on. If you see a hill, there's most likely a temple there. So on this hill in Corinth, this is Corinth, on that hill, there was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of essentially sex. 
So she was the goddess of sex, of love. So they actually had this. And I remember being in Corinth and our tour guide said, yes, on this hill was the temple of Aphrodite. And uh, every night she, they would send about a thousand temple prostitutes into Corinth to sleep with the men. They collect the money, bring it back to the temple. And this is kind of how they built out their temple. So prostitution was legal. It was rampant. Again, this was a very promiscuous city. So this is Corinth. This is Paul's writing to. Jews are moving here for freedom. Greeks and Romans are going here. A lot of business is coming here. A lot of life is happening here. I love this because, again, this reminds us of the Bible, and really the, the apostles were so intentional with where they went, how they planted churches, where they planted churches. God would usually go to really strategic cities. I feel like at first, and that we see in the book of Acts, just to get the gospel out there. I mean, I think we can say this, that Corinth is a lot more like South Florida than you and I might like to agree. We are a port city. A lot of wealth is being poured in here. A lot of people are moving here, especially right now. You can see there's a lot of different beliefs coming here. And here's the thing I love about this. This just gives us an opportunity for the gospel to go out. Like this just says, man, we're in a critical moment where like if we, if we can like capitalize on this, the gospel of Jesus can truly go to the ends of the world. Like we live in a place where people come here and then they go, maybe go back. They go north, south, east, west. They kind of go everywhere from here. We live in a critical moment. I hope that we take the posture of Paul and say, we're going to make the most of where we're at. We're going to make disciples. We're going to send people out. We want to establish a strong, healthy, vital church. You can say that's why Paul wrote two letters and probably a couple more to this church. It is vital. And their success and their like spiritual success is very important to just the gospel getting out. So Paul cares deeply about this. You guys still with me? Actually, I'm going to do this too. Um, I was like, should I do this? I'm going to do it. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, we see how this church got planted, like the circumstances around this. So I actually want to read this because we don't always get insight like this. We don't always get insight to how the church was exactly planted. So would you turn to Acts chapter 18? Um, we're going to read a lot of scripture. Acts 18. I want us to see how this church was birthed because this will kind of help set the stage for the rest um, of the book of Corinthians. So Acts 18. This is where we learn that Paul spent a year and a half here at this church, here in this city. And we're going to read the context of how this church was planted. All right, you guys ready? Acts 18. It's going to be a lot of reading. I know you guys can do it. Verse 1. It says, after this, Paul, he left Athens, all right, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native, uh, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We mentioned that. So the Jews are going there. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. This is where we learn that Paul was a tent maker by trade. And these Priscilla and Aquila were. And he reasoned, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Really quick, let me just stop there in case you're like, well, that's pretty heavy. Um, I don't know if you've ever kind of been sharing the gospel with someone for quite a while. And they're sharing, you're loving, you're sharing, you're loving. They're kind of giving pushback, pushback, pushback. Paul is basically saying, listen, everything you need to know to be saved, you have. The blood's off my hands on your head. When you stand before God, you can't say, God, no one ever told me, God. I didn't know. I didn't know enough. Why did you never send anyone? Paul's basically saying, no, no, you have, you have no excuse. The blood's off my hands. It's on your head. You can't stand before God and act like you never heard the gospel message. I'd say that applied to basically everyone in this room as well. He goes, off my, hand, off my hands, on your head. Uh, we'll keep reading. Verse 8. Or verse 7. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That's great. Crispus, listen to this, in great name. I want some crisp now. Uh, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. At this point, obviously, Paul got a little discouraged. Jesus shows up, speaks to him, goes, hey, keep preaching, keep teaching. I'm with you. No one's going to hurt you here, not in this city. It's not going to happen. I'm with you. And I love this saying of many in this city are mine. You know, I just love that thought of like, there are many people in our city, in our community that are Jesus's, and we just don't know. And we preach the gospel to make that revealed. We go and we share the gospel to find out who that is. Listen, many in your house, like many in your neighborhood are Jesus's. Like go preach the gospel and find out who they are. Do you guys get what I'm saying? Go. There are many people who Jesus like they're mine. 
We need to go and preach and find out who that is. Keep going with me. Verse 11, it says this, and he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But uh, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But, verse 15, since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And in verse 18, Paul leaves. All right, this is how the church was birthed. Jews are getting saved. The ruler of the synagogue is saved. Amazing. Then you're seeing all these Greeks believe and get baptized. You're seeing people not like what's happening. Poor Sosthenes gets beat up, beat up in the process of it. Paul spent a year and a half there, goes on and keeps planting churches. And here now he's writing to this church. And again, I just want us to see that and feel that. I want us to understand his, his love for this church. 18 months of just investing the word of God, then preaching the Messiah is Jesus from the scriptures. Here's how the, the Messiah has to be Jesus. He's reasoning with them. So now Paul's writing this letter. Again, keep in mind, here's the agenda. He was just pretty heavy-handed in 1 Corinthians. Now he's trying to speak comfort into them. He's actually going to be writing, and we'll see this in chapter 2 even, but he's basically saying, good job, you've repented. I'm proud of you. You see that it's very emotional. He's like, I'm writing this with tears. Paul's heart is being poured into this book. And now Paul begins with comfort. Now, I want to break down this section. We're going to look at comfort, and I just want you to see four simple points we're going to walk through today when it comes to comfort. When it comes to how we approach comfort or suffering, how do we do this? What do we see from Paul? We'll have four points we'll break down. We're going to look at God's praise, God's purpose for suffering, God's plan, shout out Drake, and then people's prayer, all right? Uh, God's praise, God's purpose, God's plan, uh, and people's prayer, all right? So let's break this down. We're going to see God's praise. Some of you caught that, some of you didn't. It's okay. All right, verse three, let's read God's praise. Notice how Paul starts off a letter to those who are being afflicted, and he's being afflicted. Look at verse three. What does Paul do? Verse three, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. First point, listen, when it comes to suffering, God's praise. Here's what's so critical and so important. When you come to approach suffering or affliction, you're walking through trials, Paul's secret sauce, you could say to this, was he just simply remembered who God is. Like he has the right view of God in the midst of his circumstance, in the midst of his affliction that he, his affliction that he talks about. When you are walking through something incredibly heavy, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, when you feel defeated, you must remember who God is. Notice this. He says, blessed be the God and Father. That word blessed is this Greek word that means to eulogize, where we get the word eulogy, something you do at a funeral. But when you do that, eulogy is the idea like you're admiring, you're honoring, you're lifting up. He's saying, I admire you, O God. Blessed be you, O God. Blessed be, admired, exalted, lifted up. No other name be God of the Father and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he's beginning with praise. A lot of people write about this and saying, Paul just begins with like doxology, which is the expression of his theology, which he's expressing praise and saying, God, you're so good. There's no one like you. You're the God of all mercies. You're the father of all mercies. Remember how Satan was called the father of all lies from Jesus? And he's saying, really, you're the originator of all lies. Like all lies stem from you. Here's the idea. For the God, the father, he's saying, um, you're the God. You're the father of all mercy. All mercy stems from you. You're the originator of mercy. God, we wouldn't know mercy if it wasn't for you. This is who you're the father of. The God and father, father of mercies. Notice how he even says that a couple different times. He's like, you're the father of all mercy. The God of all comfort. You know, I'm so thankful. I don't want to take this for granted that God lets us approach him as father. You know, it's one of those things where I don't know what kind of background or experience you've had with your dad or your father. And maybe it's like, a, it's a word that you're just, I don't like that. I don't like that example. You know, Jesus says, hey, when you pray, say our father in heaven. Here he's called father twice. Just how God says, no, I want to redeem this idea, redeem this word of father, the father heart of God. Come to me. God is God. Who am I to come to God? But God's like, no, no, I'm your father. Come to me as father. Jesus just introduces such a beautiful idea in the Sermon on the Mount to pray that way of saying, man, I come to God as father. Not like as some unknowable deity that I could never get to know, but as father. What a beautiful thought. Now, this truly happened yesterday, and it's one of those like fun, proud parent moments, and you got to celebrate those. But um, my son was kind of, you know, wrestling with something, and we're talking in the college, and he's like kind of having like a little pity party. And so I asked him, I'm like, Micah, like, stop, you know, that's not true. And I'm just like trying to like encourage him. And I'm like, Micah, how would you answer this question? This is true. I said, how would you answer this question? I'm like, who is Micah? Like, who are you, buddy? 
And he said, and you're like, he's like, I, Micah, he goes, I am, I'm God's son. I'm like, yes! I'm like, freaked out. I'm like, yes! Right answer! When I'm like, Micah, this is who you are. Like, you are God's son. Like, do you get it? Like, because he's having this little pity party, and he's like, kind of like, no one likes me, you know, this whole thing. And I'm like, no, no, who are you? I'm God's son. I'm like, don't forget it. You need, you need to understand that God's like, call me father, approach me this way. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The father of mercies. That we get to come to God, it's so beautiful. God's like, let me redeem this word that maybe has brought so much harm to people. Let me redeem this idea. The Father of mercies. The God, the God of all comfort. Any comfort, I'm the God of all of it. I'm the God of all comfort. That's me. That's who I am. Again, when it comes to approaching suffering or praise, we need to remember who God is. He says this next phrase, right? Who comforts us in all our affliction, in all of our affliction. Here's what I want to point out about the Bible. The Bible's not naive when it comes to suffering. I'm very thankful for this. Like, the Bible's not like, hey, just fake a smile and pretend it didn't happen. The Bible's, like, acknowledges suffering. He's the God of all of our comfort. He's the God in the midst of our affliction. Like, the Bible acknowledges some pretty heavy stuff. David confronts a lot of really depressing moments in his life in the Psalms. I mean, there's so much, like, honesty in the scriptures. I'm just, I really appreciate this about the Bible, that it's just very open and honest about what we walk through our affliction, that we're not, that God's not naive to it. You know, some of the spiritual greats that maybe I look up to or you've read or look up to, people we looked to in the past, they had some pretty dark moments and seasons of their life. One pastor said this, he says, you seem to imagine that I have no ups and downs, but it's a level and lofty stretch of spiritual attainment with unbroken joy and equanimity, but by, by no means... I am often perfectly wretched, and everything appears most murky. Charles Spurgeon said, I am the subject of depression of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Spurgeon, like the greatest preachers ever. The Bible is very open and honest about our affliction. It's saying, no, no, he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction. He's not naive to affliction. God can handle those dark moments you get to. God's not like, oh man, I can't, I can't handle that. God's like, I'm there in the midst of that. You know, it's usually in the middle of something just heavy you're walking through that you get a new perspective of God. Maybe you get like a new insight. You know, it's usually through suffering we get our best perspective of Jesus. That Jesus, Jesus also suffered and suffered greatly and suffered innocently. And when we suffer, we now relate to Jesus in ways we maybe never would have related to. That there's the Bible talks about this fellowship of suffering in Philippians 3, the fellowship of the community of suffering. When you've suffered or you know someone who's suffered, you go, oh my gosh, you can relate to me. Jesus goes, I can relate to you. I took on the sin of the world. I was rejected by my own, spat on by my own, abused by my own, innocent. I can, I can relate to you in this way. Can I tell you, there's just something we re- see a new side of God, I think, in the midst of suffering. Listen to this. Uh, Samuel Rutherford, a pastor, just talks about how he was in a dark place. He's like, how I was cast into the cellars of affliction, and there he remembered that the great king always kept his best wine there. I just love this thought. He's like, I'm cast into the cellar of affliction, but I realize that it's in that low moment. That's where God keeps his best wine. Like, I have the best experience with God using the cellar of affliction. Uh, uh, Spurgeon, after talking about this moment of just depression, he said, they who dive in, dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. I just love these analogies of like, if you go deep and dive into the sea of affliction, you usually come up with like, I have a rare pearl that I never would have had if I didn't go into the sea of affliction. Meaning you get a new insight, new perspective of just God in the midst of your suffering. He's the God of all comfort. You might not know him as the God of all comfort if you've, if you've never really been in that sea of affliction. Who comforts us in our affliction. So we see here, it's just God's praise, praising God. I remember God who you are. This is who you are. You're the God of all comfort. Next, we're going to keep going. He talks a few reasons why, why he suffers. We're not going to, this is not going to be exhaustive of why is there suffering, but from this text, we're going to look at a few reasons why we suffer. Number two, we're going to see God's purpose. God's purpose. Let's keep reading. Verse four. So verse four, he's the God of all comfort. Verse four, it says, who comforts us in all our affliction, listen, so that, everyone say, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's just start here. He's like, we are comforted by God so that we too can also comfort those who are afflicted, so that we too can encourage them. Jesus actually gives us this example in the life of Peter. Remember Peter's like, Jesus, even if all the disciples betray you, I will never betray you. Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, listen, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, and your faith may not fail. And listen, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Like Jesus, like, Peter, you know what? 
Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and I'm praying for you, dude. And when you turn again, like he's like, when you basically fail, when you fail, when you come out of this moment, strengthen your brothers. Peter did fail. Peter did deny Jesus. And then you might not feel competent. Who am I to comfort someone? I love that. Peter's like, who am I to comfort someone? He goes, and when you do that, after you're done, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. You may not feel like you have authority to comfort someone, because I don't think Peter felt the authority to comfort someone after denying Jesus a few times. But Jesus says, but when you've turned around, when you've turned again, comfort, comfort your brothers, strengthen them, come alongside them, help them. You know, so often we are comforted, we suffer so we can be comforted and so we can be com- help comfort others. The beauty of this is one, God wants to meet you and comfort you. Like it's not just someone else's job, God wants to comfort you. But on top of that, God's like, I want to send people into your life to comfort you. Like so often we put up walls and we don't let people in. We don't let people comfort. And I want to kind of say today, like, drop those walls. You know, there's something so encouraging for me. My wife and I went through something, season just of like kind of like just frustration with our kids. And it's one of those things where like something we love, we, we love, we wanted to see them thrive. We want to see them get out of this like moment. And I could call other people, other believers, mature believers in the faith for years and say, listen, our family's walking through this when it comes to our, our kids. I don't really know how to approach this. I don't know how to respond to this. And they say, hey, actually, this is incredibly normal. Our kids walk through this. Here's what Jesus did in that moment. Here's how they came out of it. Man, that is so comforting, right? The idea is sometimes we walk through things so now I can comfort others the way I've been comforted. I can now say, hey, listen, God was faithful then. He'll be faithful later. This is what Paul's describing in this moment. He's basically saying, listen, God wants to comfort you to help comfort others. God maybe I'll be allowing something in your life to like wake you up to the reality of pain and suffering. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen a Christian who's just kind of like the way they talk about suffering or the way they talk, that sometimes they approach it with this lack of sensitivity, like almost like, well, you're more than overcomer in Christ. You shouldn't be like complaining. Or what. It's almost like they have like this attitude where like, have you ever suffered before? Like, have you ever gone through something? I love how one pastor, his name is Dane Ortland. He said, it is difficult to know the true spiritual state of those who have only known the mountaintop, but never the valley, only ease, but never pain. But there is strange encouragement in the distressing afflictions of the Christian experience. This is safe ground for this is the path Christ walked and in finding ourselves on that path, we know that we are fair weather disciples. Like it's, it's when you say, man, they've been through, through something and they can speak into this moment. There's just so, something so comforting. Paul, Paul is saying, hey, here's some purpose in your suffering so you can comfort others. But he goes on to say, and here's a really interesting truth. He goes on to say, you know why you suffer? It's for the growth and salvation of others. He's like, our suffering was for your salvation. Actually, keep reading with me verse five. What does he say in verse five? He says, verse five, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Listen, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Did you catch that? He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. You could say, why are we going through this? Why am I going through this? Paul looks at his suffering and says, it's for your comfort. That word comfort even means to give strength to. It's for your strength, for your growth, and for your salvation. You know, I think a great sign of maturity is when a believer, after years of following Jesus, is like, you know what? I will put myself at a disadvantage for your advantage. Like, I will put myself aside, my opinions, my thoughts, my desires, for the sake of someone coming to know Jesus. You know, I think this last year, we've had to do that in different ways. I will lay down my opinions... I'll lay down my advantages for the sake of someone maybe coming to know and trust and believe in Jesus. The idea is that believers in Jesus say, you know, I too want to take on this mind of Christ. Christ suffered so that we could be saved. Christ went through the most extreme suffering for our salvation. And the idea is Paul is saying, you too, followers, our our suffering was for your strength, for your comfort, and for your salvation. Do you see your, your sense of affliction or trial for the sake of other people's salvation? You know, other people are watching. Other people are looking. How are you going to respond? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And it's crazy when we suffer well, how we can be like Christ in that moment and lead to some, help lead someone to Jesus. He's like, our suffering was for your salvation. I pray that God would you redeem those suffering moments. Listen, let God redeem those moments in your life where you're like, this is unbearable. Let God redeem that and use that to bring someone else to know Jesus. Amen? One more thing with this. Let's keep reading verse seven. Here's what we see also. Verse seven, he says, our hope, verse 7, for you is unshaken. 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You share in our sufferings, you'll share in our comfort. You know what suffering does? If you've experienced this, if you've experienced tragic loss or walk through heavy season, it's crazy how suffering just kind of makes you go, you know what? I'm not really happy with this world. You know what? This world is not really my home. You know what? Suffering kind of reminds you like, actually, the Bible says I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I'm just passing through to heaven. Like, this is not my home. I have a home. And God, I think, sometimes uses suffering to kind of lighten our grip on the, our love for the world. Jesus says, if you love the world, the love of the Father's not in you, right? The idea is like, you know what? Maybe God wants me to loosen my grip a little bit on my love for the things around me so I can have a greater love for eternity. Another way of saying it, I wrote it this way, is the more difficult the trials are, the sweeter the reality of heaven becomes. Like the more difficult you're suffering, you're like, oh my gosh, heaven sounds better. You're like, yeah. Now this is not some like gross, like broken perspective of like, you're like pretty, like that's pretty gross. It's almost like this idea though of like, no, no, like I'm not made for this world. Suffering reminds us of that. Suffering reminds me like, oh my gosh, I was not meant to die. I was not meant to have my body age and get broken and slowly die over time and watch other people around me die over time. That's not meant, that's not what God intended. And suffering gives you kind of this reality of like a longing for heaven. Like suffering creates within us this longing for Jesus, this longing for heaven, this longing for eternal matters. If you've ever like thought to yourself, because this is what the Bible addresses, I'm so thankful for this. If you ever see like a wicked person, like someone who's just living a lifestyle that's super self-absorbed, super selfish, super gross, super egotistical, and you're like, why do they have it all together? Like, why are they prospering? You know, the Bible actually asks that question a lot. You know, why does the evil man prosper? Like, I'm following you, God, and I'm suffering like crazy. This person wants nothing to do with you. They have like, they're like millionaires. Like, what's going on, right? And the Bible kind of addresses this. Asaph in Psalm 73, listen to how he puts it. Psalm 73, uh, Asaph says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he goes, I almost like lost my faith. I almost stumbled. I almost slipped when I saw how the wicked were prospering, when I saw how the boastful were just making it in life. He's like, it hurt my faith. Maybe it's hurt your faith. Maybe you're just looking at other, believer, other non-believers and you're like, it just does something to you. But I love his conclusion. Listen to this. It's Psalm 73, verse 16. He concludes with a powerful truth. Here's what he says, Psalm 73. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Like meaning I was getting so frustrated by the thought of the, the wicked prospering. Just too painful. Listen to this. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. I love this. He's like, once I went into the house of God, once I went to the sanctuary, I realized what the, the wicked who prosper, I realized what their end is. I realized they're pursuing things that just smoke and vapor. They're pursuing things that there's no substance to it, and I see their end. I realized that I fall, in, I fall into this trap of thinking, if I could just have more in this life, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied. He goes, no, but when I came into the sanctuary, I realized their end, and I realized what we're all here for. I realized my end. Like, we got to realize, when we come into this place, we realize, oh my gosh, we were not made for this world. Oh my gosh, God, we were made for another world. My home is in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. And suffering is to loosen our grip on things a little bit. Suffering reminds us, you know, I need to back off and realize that this is not my home. I need to realize that God, like Job said, though you slay me, I will trust you. Like, suffering does that. God, though everything fall apart, though you even slay me, it's, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. See, suffering is to loosen our grip on these things. Listen, we see God's purpose in suffering. We see this eternal focus in suffering. And number three, we're going to look in verse eight, and we see God's plan. God's plan, as Drake would say. All right, let's read verse eight. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Let's just not move on for a second. I don't want you to just like read these words. Paul's like, we went through so much, we despaired of life itself. Like, we wanted to die. Like, do we get the heavy words of Paul here? Like, sometimes we can just pass over the Bible and like, you know, he didn't say that. No, he said that. Like, Paul's like, this is really heavy for me. I despaired of life itself. I mean, David talks a lot about this. We quote those people who are like, man, life is sometimes really heavy. It's really dark. And I just want to be really clear again. God can handle those dark thoughts. God can handle those dark moments. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Why? For God, you are with me. God can handle those valley of the, the shadow of the death moments with you. God wants to walk through those moments with you. David and Paul here specifically have these thoughts of like, God, this is too much. By the way, we have no idea what he's talking about. Like Paul, like choose Paul's affliction. I have no idea. This could be the time the goldsmith or the silversmith was like, we're going to kill you, Paul. This could be the time in Acts 17 where a group of Jews got together and they made a vow. They made a covenant. We will not eat food until Paul is killed. That was their vow. We will not eat food until this man's dead. Paul was being hunted. 
All right? Like, being hunted. If somebody made a vow, like, yo, we're not going to get anything until Josiah's dead, I'm, I'm probably going to freak out a little bit. Right? Like, he's literally being hunted. He's in shipwrecks. He's beaten. He's going through. I, we have no idea when he's like, man, our affliction. I, if you're like, what affliction, Josiah? I don't know. Choose one of Paul's. He's like, I was, we were just going through it. We despaired of life itself. It was so dark. It was so heavy. And when I say, here's God's plan, here's what God was teaching him. The middle of verse 9, he just changes thoughts. Let's read how he, he, he finishes this out. Verse 9, what does he say? He says, but, okay, let's, let's read actually all of verse 9, because I want to see the whole thing. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but, everyone just say but, but, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was God's plan all along. The idea was you're going to suffer and go through it because you still have the problem of relying on yourself. God was trying to teach me not to rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead. We got to the point of feeling death. We got to the point of despairing life itself. We got to this point of death so that we could experience the resurrection power of Jesus. Paul is, the resurrection is not just for Easter. We got to know that. Like the Bible, the New Testament constantly talks about in Romans 8, this idea of living in light of the resurrection. And he's, Paul, who walked with Jesus for years and years at this point, he's going, I got so, it was so dark. It was so difficult. It was so heavy. I despaired of life itself. But God was teaching me a lesson that I still have the problem of relying on myself and not on him. And I need to remember that I need to rely on a God who raises dead things back to life. What a good word for us. I was talking to someone like this a couple weeks ago who's like, I just feel like my life is like, in this, like, it's dead. It's dead. I want to stop doing these things. I can't stop doing these things. I'll never get out of it. And I'm like, do you realize that's all we bring to Jesus? Like, Jesus, here's my dead things. And he's like, perfect. That's all I need. Just give me your dead things. I'll make it alive. Like the whole Bible is about like, bring me this death so I can make it life. The idea is like, if you feel like in any area of your life, like my marriage feels dead, God can make that alive. My my quiet time with God, my hearing from God just feels dead. God wants to make that alive. Like, this is what God does. He's like, bring me your death. I'll give you life for it. Paul's saying, here's the problem. I had the issue of relying on myself. I'm not going to lie. I have that issue. Who who has that issue of relying on themselves? Paul's like, I rely on myself. Paul. That's why the Bible is constantly just talking about, like, death to self, death to self. I just laugh because I think about it so often of, like, our world's cliche statements. Like, yo, you do you. Like, yo, treat yourself. And then the Bible's like, die to self. Like, it's it's so different than what our world tries to suggest. It's just so counter. It's like, actually, no. No, Paul's like, I had to realize I was still relying on myself too much. You know, I love the old saying. It's when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. And I've had people like, what does that mean? And I'm like, "Ah, you'll know when you experience it. (laughs) When you kind of get to the end of yourself and you're like, I'm just done. My way's not working. My way just leads to frustration and death. You know, a man plans his ways, the Proverbs talk about, but it's ways, it leads to death so often. Like, I, I try to do these things, but it just feels like death. And Paul's like, God was trying to teach me the lesson not to rely on myself, but on a God who raises the dead, but on a God who brings dead things back to life. That Paul still needed to learn the resurrection message. I think what an appropriate message for us the week after Easter. Like, we still need the resurrection. Not like Easter's over, therefore we're done talking about the resurrection. Like, no, we still need this. We still need to live in light of this. Amen? Paul's saying, here's God's plan all along. My suffering and affliction was to realize I still trusted myself and not in him. It's crazy because it's when Abraham and Sarah said, God, we can't have children. Her womb, she's old. Her womb is dead. It's as good as dead. God's like, perfect. I'll make it alive. It's when, it's when Naaman, Naaman's like the, the Syrian ruler, the Syrian general. He has leprosy over his body. Hey, go wash in the dirty Jordan River seven times, you'll be healed. No, I'm too good for that. The servant's like, yo, maybe you should just listen to God. Like maybe if you do it, your leprosy will be clean. No, I'm too good for that. But he ends up going in, wash seven times, his leprosy's killed. Sometimes we just have to come to the end of ourselves. What we think will work. Okay, God, I'll obey you. Okay, God, you say it. I'm going to give myself over to it. Paul's like, man, know what God was showing me? I, I was relying on myself too much and not on God who raises the dead. And then Paul says this statement in verse 10, I think is so profound. Verse 10, he just says this. He says, he, listen, God delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So good. Paul's like, he delivered us. He's going to deliver us. He will deliver us again. Like, what a mindset. God, you've been faithful. You're going to be faithful. You're always going to be faithful. Like, you, you are faithful. This is just who you are. You can't not be this. Uh, Jeremiah would say it best in Lamentations 3. He says, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new 
every morning, great is your faithfulness. God, you've delivered us. You will deliver us. You are delivering us. And you will deliver us. This is what God is saying. This is what Paul is saying. I really do believe, church, that needs to be not just theory and information you know, but you experience and believe into. I do want to make it really clear. Take on this mindset Paul had that he will deliver you. The whole idea is, is that Jesus delivered us on the cross. He already delivered us, and he's going to continue to deliver us, and we look to him with that mindset in the midst of our affliction. And, and listen to this. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, Timothy chapter 4, he's writing about the end of his life, and listen to how he closes out. 2 Timothy 4, 16, the last verses of Paul, the last words of Paul. Paul says in verse 16, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. All deserted me. Everyone left. Listen to that. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I mean, this is Paul's like last words, last thoughts. He has delivered me. He will deliver me. And know it's crazy. Obviously, Paul wrote these letters in 2 Timothy 4, and a few months later, he's beheaded. Paul died. And I really believe Paul knew that. And Paul's like, the Lord delivered me. He still delivered me. It might be it doesn't always look the way you're going to think. You're like, that seems crazy. That seems heavy. I want you to say that God's salvation is so much bigger. We know Jesus even said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul. That's the idea that God delivers me, man. God will deliver me. He strengthened me. I mean, these are Paul's last words he penned. He, he has been faithful. Everyone's deserted me, but not God. Church, my, my hope for us today is to see God's plan in this, is that your suffering might be for God to try to reveal it. You still rely on yourself too much and not on him who raises the dead. And then here's how it ends. Verse 11 is just simple. We saw, we saw God's praise. God's purpose, God's plan. Now we see the people's prayer. Verse 11, our closing point, he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Let me just say this. Paul still believed that prayers work and change things. Seven different times in seven different epistles, Paul's like, will you pray for me? Paul asks for prayers in seven of his letters. Like, hey, you're praying. thank you for praying for me, but will you pray more? That's usually how he like ends. Hey, I appreciate your prayers. Can you keep praying? So here's the idea prayer obviously still does affect and change things. Paul saw Peter in prison and saw the church praying, and then an angel released Peter from prison, meaning Paul knows that the prayer of the people changes things. Like, Paul knows the Old Testament. He knows how Daniel was thrown to lines then and prayer delivered him. Like, Paul knows how prayer really does change things. He goes, in the midst of my afflictions, I beg and I covet your prayers. And honestly, you know what? We just want to do that. I covet your prayers. Uh, I, I hope that you ask others for prayer. I hope that you realize in the midst of affliction, God's like, hey, praise me. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I'm doing. Don't forget I'll comfort you in this. Don't forget that I'll send people in your life to comfort you. And one of those ways God comforts us is by people praying. And you know, church can just be sometimes a service you feel like you come and attend and sit and listen. We don't want it to be that. We want to turn this into what Jesus called it, a house of prayer. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to make this house of prayer. We're going to end with some prayer. And I'm going to say, we just want to close in our time by saying, I hope that as you pray, you will be comforted and you will help comfort others. We're going to worship. We're going to have the band come back up. But my, my desire, I'm asking you guys, is to turn that song of praise like into a prayer to God. And maybe you need to pray with someone next to you. Maybe you need to say, God, give me insight who I could pray with. We will have leaders up here, and we would love to pray with you. If you feel like I'm kind of in that affliction season and I need prayer, I would say, listen, put those walls down and let people pray for you. Like, let us pray for you. Let us comfort you. Be comforted by God and be comforted by those that God might send into your life. And so we're just going to spend some time in prayer because this is how Paul concludes this, this like, thought of suffering. So listen, church, we're going to pray. We're going to worship. I would say, take advantage of this moment. Maybe you need to pray for someone or maybe you just need to be comforted yourself. Maybe you need someone to lay a hand on you and just say, Jesus sees you and loves you and is with you. Fear not for he's with you and you, you just need to receive that. This is a moment for us to remember that Christ was afflicted for our comfort. That Jesus suffered so we can be comforted. That we are comforted right now with this lens of the cross and through the lens of the resurrection that we don't want to rely on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. So let's pray.